I I just uh, want to make some weird T-shirt that's like Joe's born in February, get it? But Evan's born in <laughs> January, just don't. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for April 19th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we are going to welcome you into our tradition, our oral tradition of verbal banter and storytelling and maybe even a little bit of insight. What we're going to do is going to have a conversation, much like the ones that we had at the Apocryphal Wendy's. And in these conversations, we'll discuss ideas, drawing them wherever they may come from, and attempting to evaluate them without prejudice and in good faith. Always in good faith. Always trying trying to be in always good faith. Always trying, because I know we don't always. Yeah. Because, because we are only human. Oh, good lead-in. Ah, Transition! Ah, we are only human. Um, we don't know everything. We make mistakes against our ideals. I know. Crazy. Um, and, um, you know, we don't we, we don't sit upon the ivory tower. We know that other people can have perspectives other than our own, be valid in them, and can come to different conclusions than we do, um, which is a tough thing to do. You know, even though we have the great generational divide between Evan and I, you know, he was <laughs> he was born a month before me and he just doesn't understand what the, the youngins are about. Um, <laughs> so anyway, hey, Evan. Yes, uh, young Joe. Oh, Elder Elder Evan, what, what do you want to talk about? Well, I'm today? not a Mormon. I mean, geez. I want to talk about the Oscars. Yeah, all right. I got. Yeah, it's in L.A., not New York, but we'll take it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It feels. Um, It feels. uh, I don't know. Is there an onomatopoeia to music? Like I don't know. It feels correct in my mind. Onomatopoeia. La La Land. That's appropriate for an L.A. Sarah. Okay. City of Stars. Yeah. Edit, edit in City of Stars. Get them to sue us. Yeah. Um, all right. Cool. Um, so anyway, it's the one time a year where I get to talk about movies and claim that I'm talking about current events. So I want to do kind of two things with my segment today. I want to do my classic if I picked the winners thing where I get to say who I like the best from the nominees, but I also want to give you a little bit of help in your Oscar pool if you're doing one this year and handicap the odds of who I think has the best chance of actually winning. And Joe can chime in because he just watched Watchmen, which is a show not nominated for Oscars, but nonetheless. (laughs) (laughs) I participated in a culture that is two years old now. (laughs) Hey, better, better late than never. (laughs) <laughs> the best the, director is how yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead do you have do you have a bit no i want to hear the bit oh my bit was i i i'm always i the best i can do is two years later i i Very can't good do bit. anything of the year yep great bit. <laughs> best director is where we're looking first and i think that the outcome here is pretty clear but we're doing if i pick the winners first and my 
favorite director in this year of this crop is Chloe Jaw of Nomadland. I think that it is a gorgeous film, and Jaw is able to craft a story visually, narratively, intellectually, poetically, in a way that stands above the other nominees, even if just slightly for some of them. Because I think that the, the Oscar movies this year is actually a very good crop. Sometimes there are a lot of good movies that the Oscars don't nominate, and then what we do get is a bunch of shitty movies. I don't think that's the case this year. I actually like a lot of the highly nominated movies, but for Best Director, I like Chloe Jaw, Nomadland. And I also believe that Chloe Jaw is going to win. She's winning the majority of the precursors. It seems like despite a little bit of backlash, Nomadland really does have the majority of the steam this year. And I think that it's going to be a big night for Nomadland. Chloe Jaw is going to take Best Director, becoming the second female winner and first Asian woman to win Best Director. That is my pick. I've thought about watching that movie. I love it. <laughs> I would say um, d- doesn't doesn't tickle the Joe buttons. I don't think. Yeah, the, the as Evan the the uh, the sole arbiter of what is in the Joe aesthetic. Um, <laughs> well, no, I'm the sole arbiter. You're the chief shaman. You know, trying to <laughs> interpret it. Um, <laughs> I'm a mystic. Yeah. You are the oracle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that was best director. Best director. So next category is best actor. And if I could pick the winner, the best actor of the nominated performances would be Steve Yun from Minari. Steve Yun is a guy who has done a lot of very interesting work over the past few years. I think that he was really good in Burning, which was a South Korean film from 2018. He has appeared on I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. He has also lent his voice to the Netflix animated series Tuka and Birdie. Uh, and I think he's, he's most well known to audiences on The Walking Dead, but I haven't seen that, so I can't really comment on it. And in Minari, he plays a, an immigrant father who is trying to develop a plot of land in rural Arkansas to give his family a better life. And I love the maturity of this role. I love the conflict that we see embodied in Steve Yun because we get the sense that on one hand, he does want to create a better life for his family. But on the other hand, it's his venture is really tied up in his own pride and trying to do something for himself. And so to see these battles that take place entirely within his eyes between his desire for his family and his own self-satisfaction is really fascinating. And I think Steve Yun absolutely nailed it. And if I picked the winner, he would be my guy, but he is not going to win the winner this year. It's going to be Chadwick Boseman from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is a fine performance. I personally think his work in The Five Bloods this year was better, but Ma Rainey is the one that people have rallied around. He's won almost every precursor, and in honor of his beautiful life and varied, courageous career, Chadwick Boseman is going to take home Best Actor for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That is almost a lock. Yeah. I mean, especially he he's the one who passed away, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, uh, yep. 
So. Yes. And, you know, beautiful career award. Can't really fault it. Yeah. Yeah. I love Steve Yun in Minari. And actually, Best Actor is one of the ones where I I have very differing opinions from the Academy. Because in addition to all of this, guys, remember that the Evies are going to come out, which has an entirely different slate of nominees. Check that out on MidwesternPerspective.com if you have not yet. Shameless plug. Yeah. Next, Best Actress. And... My favorite performance of the year, I think, of the nominees is Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. I think that she does two things amazingly well. As the character of Cassie, she builds a facade and then also hews away from that facade and reveals vulnerability and pain as the film continues. And... By the end, I feel like you have such a genuine empathetic connection with Cassie that you can't walk away from that film unmoved. I loved Promising Young Woman. That's one of the most polarizing films of the year. But Carrie Mulligan's work is, in my opinion, unimpeachable. And I think that the Oscars are going to agree. Carrie Mulligan is my prediction as well as my hope diction. And maybe I am doing a little bit of hope dicting, but (laughs) I think that uh, Vanessa Kirby is an also-ran. United States vs. Billie Holiday with Andre Day, that got the most love it's going to get at the Golden Globes. Frances McDormand isn't campaigning, and so I think the really only two viable women to win this award are Carrie Mulligan or Viola Davis, also from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And it could very well be Viola. She has won before. She is a fantastic actress, adored by the Academy. I'm hoping against hope, though, that Carrie Mulligan is going to just have enough support based on the quality of the work that she will win out. I like hope diction. That's... Now, now I could go either way on that. Is, is it is it a hopeful prediction or a, a, an addiction to hope? Ooh. It is predicting in hopes that it will come true. All right. I didn't create this word. I wish I could. I, I don't create much. Um, you know, I'm generally more of a little sponge and then eventually someone else's takes seep out of me. Um, so, you know, that's really good for my self-esteem. I, I like to think that, you know, in human world, everyone just kind of creates one little thing that's kind of unique, and then everything else is just a regurgitation. But, hmm, hmm, probably Except false. Iglesias, who, yeah. who produces eight million new are ideas t- are a day. Are you kidding me? It's all regurgitation. <laughs> it's all derivative. Yeah. You know, but but there's there's something to be said for playful recombination. Well, yeah. I mean, um, if anything, that's all the new ideas is playful. Re- I mean, what is an invention but someone taking two newish kind of ideas out in the world and putting them together in a new way? Yeah, that's true. I love yeah. how abstract these conversations get because you haven't seen any of the movies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to get something in here. Hey, next. Supporting actor. My favorite of the... Okay, let me say a note on supporting actor, though, because 
I normally don't care too much about category fraud, basically lead performances deliberately submitting and supporting because they think that they'll have a better shot at winning, but the category fraud is really bad this time. I would contend that the only supporting performance nominated for supporting actor is Paul Racy in The Sound of Metal, but it is what it is, and Sasha Baron Cohen, Daniel Kaluuya, Leslie Odom Jr., and Lakeith Stanfield are all going to fight it out. So, of those... Go ahead. Wait, is Sasha Baron Cohen for Borat? No, Trial of the Chicago 7. Okay. I guess, I mean, I I was going to be like, if it was for Borat, I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, well... No, go ahead. Finish that thought. The name. Well, well, because the name of the the fucking thing is Borat, and he played Borat. (laughs) Yes. And so then, Joe, what happened is there was a movie called Judas and the Black Messiah about Fred Hampton, the Black Panther leader, and the man who betrayed him. And both Judas and the Black Messiah are here in supporting actor. Mm. Ah. (laughs) So that's why it's ridiculous. And they both have a lot of screen time. They're integral to the plot. So so (laughs) does it just end up being... That if if um, the you know lead role is only if it's solo lead, like there can't be co leads. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes not. The Academy, I don't think, has ever made a good ruling on this, and it's exploited time and time again. We need to take it to the courts. Take it to the ninth district. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. You 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 write an amicus brief and I'll look up more legal mumbo jumbo to say yes. next week. And then you submit my amicus brief because I think that's how that works. If you you go like co-spawn I don't know. Anyway, we're getting into the <laughs> abstraction again. <laughs> so of the nominated performances, I've got a soft spot for Leslie Odom Jr., who played Sam Cook in One Night in Miami. And I think that acting is a lot more than imitation. But the way that he embodies Sam Cooke is just so impressive to me. Every time he spoke or sang, I just kind of kind of had to shut my mouth because it was hanging agape in wonderment. I, I loved what Leslie Odom Jr. did in that movie. That's nice. But he's not going to win. No. This is another one that I feel like is a virtual lock. Daniel Kaluuya, who played Fred Hampton in Judas and the Black Messiah, has won every major precursor. It is a fantastic performance, don't get me wrong. It, it is a truly, the way that he captures the energy of Fred Hampton's oratory is also just a sight to behold. And he does great work. It's totally a deserving win. Like I said, it is also a lead performance, but he's going to take it home. And congratulations, Daniel Kaluuya, a well-deserved Oscar winner. Yeah, good on taking things home. Have you seen Black Mirror? Uh, I've seen one episode. Was it the 15 million merits episode? No, it was uh San Junipero or. Oh, okay. That. Yeah. Yeah. San Junipero. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. It was very good. I I've been meaning to watch it, but, but again, I, I just often, uh, most of the time, my TV time is, I don't want to be directly engaged time. Uh-huh. So, so that is something that I would have to be directly engaged in. And, you know, I don't always want to be directly engaged in. I, uh, I get it. I understand. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> Supporting actress. Uh, I'm picking for, for my favorite. If I got to pick the winner, the winner would be Maria Bakalova, Borat's subsequent movie film as Borat's daughter, Tutar. 
I, I I've heard other way... people have similar opinions about that. I don't. Oh yeah. <laughs> I I I don't I don't have any means to actually weigh in on it, but <laughs> just the the maturity of going along with a live wire improv no net Sasha Baron Cohen keeping pace with him step for step and you know just having no sort of name or really notable credentials and to be able to turn in a performance that insightful that humorous that flexible i think is worthy of a ton of merit and i think she did a fantastic job i love that character i love that role i love the performance supporting actress is perhaps the most up in the air category that is among the major above the board categories so my prediction is going to be Yoon, Je, Yoon Ye Jung from Minari. She plays the irascible grandma who accidentally drinks pee because the little boy tricks her into thinking it's Mountain Dew and she cusses and she doesn't play by the grandma rules. It's the kind of thing that the Oscars are going to go for. I think that she has momentum. Again, it is a good performance as well. Nothing against the performance. It's not my personal favorite, but... I think that one could go a lot of ways. I think Bakalova could take it. I think Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy is unfortunately very much in the running. But I think that the Academy regrets not giving more acting awards to Parasite to these South Korean performances. And I think that there may be a correction this year and a deserving performance in Yoon Ye Jung might be able to ride the wave. And Minari's also a fantastic film, so that's what I'm thinking. Why does it just seem that every waking second that goes by, Hillbilly Elegy just gets more complicated? And <laughs> like, like, you know, even from the beginning, it was like, well, you know, this isn't really, you know, I don't really see it as a big thing of broad overtures in society, but, you know, as one guy's memoir of what happened in his life, that seems pretty good. And now the guy is like into Tucker Carlson. The movie, from what I have heard, has been pretty bad. Um, yeah. So but, I, I'm actually kind of a defender of the book, but the movie is absolute. Ass. Well, yeah, I, I like the book. I really enjoyed the book when I read it. But, it, but again, it's just getting more complicated as yeah. as the years go. Like, like is J.D. Vance courting proto fascism? Like, I don't. Yeah, know. that's that's the thing. It's like J.D. J.D. Vance is proving his critics right at every turn. Yeah. Ever since that book came out. But, so. that, but, but then it would probably be phrased as, well, this is what you called me. So might as well become it. And like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's not a good excuse. Look what you made me do. Ohio listeners, if J.D. Vance runs for senator or whatever, don't vote for him. Please. Please don't. Um, so anyway, he'll, the moral of the story is hillbilly elegy is weird. And that hopefully that grandma from that movie wins. Yeah. Yeah. Or Maria Bakalova. Or Original screenplay. I think this is a very competitive category. I love Promising Young Woman. I love the story and everything that's going on. But I think on a screenplay level, I might have to give it to Trial of the Chicago 7. I think that Aaron Sorkin, for all of his haters, writes really great dialogue. He's able to intelligently display thematic musings in an organic way within the script. And... 
I think that it was a really great treatment, and if I picked the winner, Aaron Sorkin would be walking home with an Oscar. Best original screenplay. Yeah, I did watch that, so I am relevant. Jeez, crazy. All right, um, then give your take. Yeah, I. it, it feels... Like an appropriate Sorkin subject. <laughs> yeah. Um, lots of smart people who can do some dialogue or that it's it's plausible that they do some dialogue and and they're just in a in a situation where ideals are involved. Mm-hmm. Yep. That that that's just like I, I that's almost definitionally a, a Sorkin <laughs> project. Smart people in scenarios where they can have smart conversations, where there is a run-in with ideals and actual reality. The scene where Abby Hoffman, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, and Tom Hayden, played by Eddie Redmayne, debate out what the goals of their protest movement are, I think is really insightful and something that people should pay attention to as we have our modern debates about the role of activism within progressive spaces. Oh yeah, spaces. When, when, I, when I was watching that, I was like, that's just today. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's, yeah, nothing changed. <laughs> yes, but I don't think it's going to win. I do think Promising Young Woman is going to take home the Oscar, Emerald Fennel. Like I said, wonderful script, probably my second choice, and I love the movie even more than I love Trial of the Chicago 7. I just think there's a lot that... Emerald Fennell does as a director and that Carrie Mulligan does as an actress that uh, Paris Hilton does on the soundtrack that really elevate it in a way that isn't necessarily on the page. But I still think that Promising Young Woman is going to win. I think the Academy loves it. I think they want to reward it in some category. And with Carrie Mulligan not a lock to win Best Actress, I think Emerald Fennell is going to take a well-deserved screenwriting Oscar, and I'm happy for it. Nice. Adapted screenplay. My pick, I'm going to say... Kemp Powers, One Night in Miami, based on the play. I think that it's very similar to The Trial of Chicago 7. Maybe I'm really revealing my own tastes more than anything else, but again, it's a movie comprised almost entirely of conversation, not so much about the general left movement, but about specifically black empowerment and what methods are justified and most effective and i think for a movie that is so dialogue heavy the fact that it was able to keep me engaged is a testament to the screenwriter so if i could pick the winner i would give adapted screenplay to one night in miami but i think that nomadland chloe jaw is going to win i think nomadland has the most support from the most branches of the academy and adapted screenplay is going to be another feather in that cap uh, these partisan hacks. Who's a partisan hack? JD Vance. You're the, right. The, the different, the different <laughs> wings of the, the. the oh, because they're explicitly partisan. They own. They care yeah. about screenwriting, so they vote for screenwriting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it's like how we talk now. How the founders never envisioned parties to be these coalitions that would work across branches of government, but here we are. Yeah, <laughs> that's what made me think of it. Like, oh, man, they got the Academy Supreme Court even about it. Like, how are we going to win about with that? (laughs) Uh, That's that's funny. Just a few more awards (laughs) that I want to get through. Best animated feature. If I could pick the winner, I would 
without hesitation give it to onward onward i think uses its fantasy setting to explore really deep emotional quandaries that are brought about death loss hope recovery and i think that as opposed to the movie that's going to win i think that it hits its mark far more often but what's going to win what hasn't lost a single award to my knowledge this season has been soul and soul's okay but at the end of the day i think that its view on life and what makes life worth living is almost offensively reductive okay viewing nature and eating pizza all that stuff is nice but for someone who truly feels like they don't have a purpose like they don't have fulfillment in their soul those things are little comfort those are nice things that people should enjoy but it's just it, it, it's reductive to say that that is all of life or that that is the the raison d'etre for someone who is really struggling with self-doubt so the the way I'm, you get out of depression is you just go exercise a little bit <laughs> the way you feel a little soul in this world is you have a little pizza i don't i haven't seen it so i'm just going off what you've said but, but that's basically what it is and that's why it's so disappointing to me is that it does it grapples i think with even weightier themes than onward but it resolves in a much more facile direction that that was not what i wanted from it but it's gonna win it's i i don't know it's it's the front runner i don't see anyone upsetting it because the only movie that i think would have any sort of popular traction behind it is wolf walkers and that was really flawed too i didn't like wolf walkers um so you know soul's gonna win it whatever I, I, another one for pixar i'll take it pizza is the simple things in life I've said it. <laughs> oh, oh, you're going to get canceled for that one. I mean, we got yep, canceled I'm last ready. week. We were right. We did get canceled. Yeah, yeah. It's not like we goaded it out of Alex <laughs> or anything. Uh, so let's talk about Best International Feature Film. The mm. nominated film that I would most like to see rewarded would be Collective. This is one that I tried to pitch to Joe because it does hit the Joe beats, but... It violates uh, one of Joe's bright lines, which is that there's subtitles. But it's a really fascinating uh. examination of a political crisis going on in Romania where a web of government corruption was uncovered and a cabal of technocrats was put in power on a temporary basis. And we get to see the, the journalists document these technocrats attempting to make good faith reform to the system and then... We see kind of both the structural and populist ways that their best intentions are undermined. I don't want to spoil the ending, but it's a really powerful look at the intragnizance of institutional failure, and I highly recommend it. It's not going to win, are, though. Go ahead. Are you, are you saying that it's possible that the technocrats, the nerdy technocrats, may not win a power struggle? Oh, hmm. Yes, mm. that's exactly the most predictable thing, but it yeah. <laughs> are you talking are you saying a bunch of sweaty nerds aren't going to put up the most vehement defense? 
Well, you know, not yet. Yeah. They'll technocrat their way out of that one eventually, but not yet. I'm just imagining, you know, the, the you know, government is being overrun and, and Jerome Powell having people come after him. And he's just like, what? What's go- just OK, fine. Just take me. Fine. I'll, I'll change the interest rates. Will that make you happy? Jesus. Like, what do you want? Give me your Twitter. I'll follow your Twitter. <laughs> I'll listen to your podcast. Yeah, I'll <laughs> I'll listen to your podcast. I'll do your ideas. Just I I, I like being the Fed chair. Just somebody talk to me. <laughs> I would I would I would I would be Jerome Powell's bro. I I would if I could, given the opportunity. Jerome Powell. Yeah, it works. Thank you. The winner of International Feature is going to be the Danish film Another Round about a group of teachers who have lost their zest for life. And instead of just catching a little spinny seed pod like in Seoul, they decide to do an experiment where they constantly maintain a low blood alcohol level. And with a minor spoiler alert, What they learn is that it's not the alcohol that improves their life, but the social license that it gives them to re-engage with their environment in an active and meaningful way. It's a beautiful film. Thomas Vinterberg is well overdue for an Oscar. He's been cranking out really good movies in Denmark for a while, sort of a, a real auteur in the realist sense of the word. A real and movie man's movie man. He, he, he He's good at the talkies, you know? Um, <laughs> and another round is the international film that has support from the other branch because Vinterberg was also nominated in the main directing category. So I, I think another round's win is all but inevitable. This one is a lock. Put it in your Oscar pool and thank me for the point you get later. Points. All right, I want to do documentary, and then we'll finally get to best picture. Best Ooh, documentary. documentary. My favorite nominated documentary is The Mole Agent, and that is a movie about an 80-year-old man in Chile who goes undercover to try to investigate reports of corruption in a local nursing home. But what he finds is not at all what he expected. And this is one where it's kind of hard for me to express what I loved so much about it without spoiling the ending. So I'm just going to leave it at at this. There's a lot of emotional surprises packed throughout this movie. There's a lot of humor, and it also made me cry. So the full range of human emotions on display in this little quirky Chilean documentary that kind of plays like a Nathan Fielder episode. Um, (laughs) But it's absolutely wonderful film. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to win. I think that the winner is going to be Time, a prison abolition film about bank robbers who went to jail and then were sad about it. I, I, I'm, I'm being dismissive and not quite in good faith, but that's the gist of it. I didn't like time. Um, I feel like they were trying so hard, straining to make it an important movie with black and white cinematography, even in present day, and and this really cloying piano score to show us how serious and somber everything is but at the end of the day i don't think it's a persuasive argument in favor or against anything politically and 
I, I didn't care for it, but I think that it's got the support. The only thing is that my octopus teacher is coming on really strong, and depending on when the Academy gets the majority of the ballots in, my octopus teacher might have enough support to win, which is a shame because I think those are actually the two weakest documentaries in the entire field. Joe, do you remember Ezra pitching my octopus teacher on his most recent show or a show from this past week? So I'm actually bad. I'm behind on Ezra this week. Oh, no. Oh, no. I don't know. He just gives a little blurb at the end saying, oh, everyone should watch My Octopus Teacher on Netflix because it's about this guy who befriends an octopus. And isn't that cool? And I'll tell you, Joe, it's not that cool. Um, uh-huh. he, he basically spends like an entire year with this octopus and very little happens until one day the octopus is attacked by a shark and then the the shark shark and the octopus are kind of clashing and you don't know whether the octopus is going to die or if the shark is going to or if the octopus is going to escape the shark and then at that exact moment the filmmaker runs out of air and has to go up for air and we miss the only interesting thing that fucking happens in this year of him talking to this octopus it's infuriating like the guy is a documentarian and if you just like looking at nature footage it's beautiful but there's exactly one interesting thing that happens in the fucking story and he doesn't even film it so Mm -hmm. no (laughs) um so that's my rant it might win but i think it's going to be time use your best judgment that one's a really close race uh you know it's been weird i i i've you know ever since ezra moved to the new york times his shows just haven't been doing it the same to me yeah his his i would say the tone of his guests has shifted and i i would have to agree i still like it i still think that he's good yeah but yeah it's not quite the same is it there's just again like i think you said it kind of better at one point it was like it's like he's playing to the new york times audience now Mm -hmm. and and i'm not the new york times audience i'm really the vox audience yeah (laughs) and i really liked it when he did his podcast at vox Mm -hmm. so it it just i i don't i and i don't even you know have a material like concrete way to express my i don't know dis dissatisfaction feels a little bit too strong of a word but just the differences of how the show is i don't know yeah just the tweaks that he made and yeah like maybe maybe over maybe it's just uh you know hiccups coming to the new place but i don't know maybe I i don't know i don't know I don't know. And, it, Tough and it's say. hard because I was a fervent fan for so oh, long. Yeah. And then just all of a sudden, I'm kind of like, eh, I, if I get to it. <laughs> well, uh, spoiler alert, I've stopped listening to most other podcasts, but I do listen to Ezra twice yeah. a week. Yeah, generally good stuff. All right. So here's the big finale. Best picture. For one, let me start off by saying that I think this is actually a fantastic best picture field there's eight movies that are nominated and i enjoyed all of them except for one and that was the father i thought the father 
was kind of more tricks than substance. And I think at the end of the day, I, I don't really think it succeeded in saying what it was trying to say, or even achieving the effect that it was trying to achieve and getting us into the mind of a man with dementia. I, I just don't think that it really worked for me. But the rest of the nominated movies, I thought were all really good. My favorite of them in a very close decision is Nomadland. I think that Nomadland is such a rich film. I think that it shows America's fundamental beauty and also its fundamental vulnerability, its fundamental strength and its fundamental hardship. And I don't think that it goes the way that a lot of people thought it was going to go, which is just a one-dimensional screed I think that it really shows both the freedom and the restraint of the life of the nomads in a respectful, humanizing way that brushes up against the political without being shackled to it. So Nomadland in a slim victory over Promising Young Woman is my favorite of the Best Picture nominees. And I believe that Nomadland will win Best Picture. I think that... It has had the most consistent support since it debuted at the New York Film Festival last year, and even though there have been some people who have come out against it specifically for its portrayal of Amazon warehouses, I really don't think that there is a viable alternative for voters to vote for to overtake Nomadland, and I do believe that it will capture Best Picture. It would be an absolute shock if Nomadland did not win Best Picture based on the precursors and based on the general feeling of this awards season. I hope it wins. I hope so too. Promising Young Woman won't win Best Picture, but that would be the other acceptable choice for me. It's promising. It's young. It's woman. Joe, what do you want to talk about? Oh, man, just went straight into it. You didn't even let it set for a sec. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm self-conscious about my segments. I got I got to move on really quick. Okay, fine. Well, now let me take up. Let me let me manspread on my topic here. Let me just open my. <laughs> Joe, that's all I ever wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I'm I'm even stalling just getting started, man. Um, so I I um so big news in Joe's world. I just got a Kindle, Woo! which means I guess. And after a, an initial very successful trial run of it, reading a book, I think it's now reading is back on the table, gang. Yeah! I'm gonna be reading more. So so today we have a book review. Um, by Wait, Joe. I, Joe, I didn't prepare a book review, Joe. Oh. Wait, do you have a book review? I have a book review. A Joe book review! Yay! A, jo- a, jo- a joke review. No. Oh. <laughs> you, want, you want me to give you my stand-up? <laughs> and then we'll review it. What's the deal with Jared Kushner? Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, um. So anyway... Uh, the book I decided to read um, is called The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and Where They Are Going. Um, it is by the author Ryan Burge, who is, he is a, uh, 
he is an academic who deals with the intersection of politics and religion and also happened to be one of my professors in college. Joe, um, just to interject really quickly, would you please spell the title of the book? Because there will be some confusion when it's just said out loud. Yes. So this is not like the religious nuns. If you wanted to ask for your pizza with no um, sausage, you would put none. So the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. Um, and um, what it, who are the nuns? Why, what is the conversation here? What is the whole spiel, the shtick, the, the other S-A-S-C-H words, you know? <laughs> um and and what it boils down to is i think if we were to express the opinion that you know america has become less religious over time and and less fewer people are going to church nobody would argue with that and this is something that has been of a bit of a trend for a good long while um since you know the late 20th century but what the the dramatic thing is that when the uh, 2018 general uh, social survey, which is the gold standard for religion or uh, measuring religion in American, you know, in American society, because it's been asking the same questions the same way for for about 50 or so years, which is longer than really anyone else has. Um, what we found, what was found was that by 2018, a, a between a, a fifth and a quarter of Americans identified as not being part of religion, of not belonging to a religion, which is puts it in the same ballpark as people who identify as Catholic. It ends up being more people. I believe, than who identify as uh, evangelical Christian in the same ballpark as people who are main uh, mainline Protestant. So this is a big deal um, in, in some respects because this is a changing landscape of the religious, well, change <laughs> landscape of America. Um, it's something that's been coming along for a while, but... It's uh, the speed at which it has been happening has really picked up over the last, really the last decade, um, where the trends have really increased. Um, so, so what's what's causing this? What 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 are what are the main factors going along with this? And one of them, um, one one theory is that. It very much could be the case that over time um, that our country isn't actually a whole lot less religious than it has been to the same magnitude that the numbers would show. Because over the last decade or so, it has become more um, socially acceptable for someone to identify as non-religious. So if you were someone... Like I think in the book at one point they used an example like if you were uh, someone who lived in Mississippi in 1977 in a deeply um, southern Baptist area 
it, you almost couldn't be a member in good standing of society to say you didn't believe in God. Um, you, you just wouldn't. So even if you had your doubts, you wouldn't really express them openly. And you would still say that you were a member of, you know, probably the Southern Baptist Church, but, you know, whatever other organization you would have belonged with in order to keep up, you know, like appearances with society where over the last 10 years, um, in part due to, I mean, it, I mean, th this will be a different section, but people have had a greater openness to expressing their non-religiousness. Um, so this could be a scenario where um, the data is just becoming closer to the observed universe instead of um, explaining a, a drastic change that has occurred. Yeah, I don't know what the eventual conclusions of the book are, but we see this type of thing all the time happen when social mores change. So I saw a chart recently of a, you know, the num the ratio of people who self-identify as left-handed and there's kind of a a slight decline for a while and then a huge spike and then it levels off. Was there a time in history where all of a sudden we became inundated with left-handed people? No. The inflection point in the graph reflects when schools stopped penalizing children who attempted to write with their left hand. So then the actual ratio of people who are naturally left-handed could be accurately reported. And this is something we also see that comes up with the spike in people who are identifying as transgendered. Is it that yeah, we have- Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is, is it this thing where all of a sudden something is turning people trans? Likely are not. Are they getting transed? <laughs> I like that verb. Um, no, it, what, what we're seeing is that as it's becoming socially acceptable, people who felt that way already are just able to express it. So, like I said, I don't know if if the author here finds that this is a persuasive explanation or not, but uh, at face value, it seems like it must it, it, it would likely account for at least some of this. I, I, I will say here, um, there isn't as much as a clean wrap up in this book as we would like, as I think you're hoping for. Um, this, this was a book kind of more along the lines of the, uh, Asians and Bartel, um, democracy for realists where it, they evaluate it felt, the evidence and then they're like, all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, this is, this book is more of a description of a phenomena and the possibilities of what are going on than saying directly, this is what causes the phenomena, why and where we go from here. Okay, there's no problem um, with that. Uh, good yeah. clarification, though. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, I remember there was, um, you know, there was the big whole thing where J.K. Rowling basically came out as a turf um, and wrote this big, long sprawling essay uh, you know explaining her um dislike of the trans people at one point she marveled at there had being a four thousand percent increase in childhood um you know trans hormonal therapies or something like that and it was something like it went from if you actually looked at the numbers it went from like 
point zero 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 one percent of children to like point zero zero you know four five percent of children when it you know it actual trans tendencies in the population were like one percent so it was a magnitude you know a huge magnitude of increase but it wasn't like you know all the kids were getting transed it's just um, that it was such a low number yeah. to begin with that any even a small increase as a percentage would be quite large. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the theory of uh, the rise of people without religious affiliation in the United States is that it could be that, yes, there has been an increase in religious non-affiliation in the United States, but maybe that increase is not so much people having differing thoughts on uh, religion, uh, just so much more people being able to express it. But that's just one theory of what's going on. Exactly, because if I may editorialize briefly, it would make sense that, yeah, maybe some people would eventually become more empowered to express their true feelings of a religiosity, but that would probably need to be precipitated by the culture becoming genuinely less religious, which, which allows that to be expressed. Maybe. Or just have some very loud atheists of the late 2000s tradition, like uh, Richard Hitchens. Dawkins and Sarah. Yeah. And Sam Harris and, and yeah, Christopher Hitchens and your Bill Mars, you know, the, the adamant asshole. <laughs> um um so so yes uh, a better better uh, statistical understanding of it that's that's one possibility another possibility is just this idea of secularization um so you know in europe it is just hard compared to the united states hardly anybody is religious in europe um uh, to, you know, if, uh, you, you know, we hear the numbers now that, you know, in the United States, like something like 25% of people don't re- affiliate with religion. If that same stat was about Europe, everyone would be like, what is with the monumental increase in religious affiliation? <laughs> um, and, and part of this seems to have to do with as societies become more advanced and, you know, in one of the graphs in the book, it did seem like, there is a somewhat of a relationship um, between GDP and and uh, GDP per capita and uh, religious affiliation with the United States being an extreme outlier. Really? Like, yeah. That's so fascinating. Like, yeah. So there, there's a graph in the in the book that's pretty interesting where most countries fall along this graph where uh, GDP per capita is increasing and religious affiliation is like going down as you know the graph goes to, you know further but then re- <laughs> the united states is at the very highest of gdp per capita but is just so far away from the graph um so it, it at least in along that respect we are a truly unique nation um, and, and it was interesting because like, yeah, there was an exploration of like why the United States is maybe more religious than other countries, especially the, like Europe. And one thing is that um, the United States never had 
uh, a, you know, we have the divide between church and state. And, you know, edgy atheists like to say there is no divide, but um, there clearly is. There has never been an official United States government religion, um, you know, you run by the government, um, which is not the case in a lot of European countries. So one thing that happened in a lot of European countries is that there was an official state religion. And so what happened um, with the state also affected the religion where, you know, one or the other was able to taint the other and would, uh, you know, over time make the religion seem less like, uh, you know, less religious or, you know, um, you know, just less divine almost. Yeah. Well, yeah, less divine, but then also like if you had an issue with the government and the government specifically, uh, endorsed one religion and was like running that religion, then it was like, well, screw that religion. And mm-hmm. just, I, and since oftentimes that was the one religion, you couldn't just go and turn to another one if you wanted to keep being religious. So you just fell out. Mm-hmm. Um, um, whereas in the United States, we have never had the state religion. And then we have always had the, um, freedom to practice different religions so it's possible that since no one religion has ever quite been in the zeitgeist fully you know the full you know the american religion it's possible that people you know these religions are better able to shield themselves from those mass criticisms that they haven't been able to in other societies Mm. but then there's also another interesting question where we have seen the decline in religion. You know, um, so let's back up here a second. So for the longest time, the main religious tradition in the United States was the mainline Protestant. Um, this encapsulates like your uh, your Presbyterians, your Episcopals, your Anglicans, your these. I, I guess they got the term because their churches were oftentimes on the main streets of towns. So they were, you know, the main street or mainline Protestant religions, um, you know, a congregational, you know, I'm thinking of Galesburg where the, the big church on our square is the, you know, like Central uh, Congregational Church. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that's which I, I attended services in that church many times because when the Episcopal Church lost their building we were welcomed to do a service like in the morning before the congregationalists came i uh, did the way up early one um yeah but anyway also um, one more thing is that in the simpsons they spoof this amalgamation because their church is a presby lutheran church <laughs> presby lutheran yep that's nice. that's what religion the simpsons are but anyway so that was the main religion um, for a good long time. but And, and then Catholic uh, religion has always been a very dominating force because um, a lot of immigrants from, you know, pretty much wholly Catholic countries have come to the United States. I mean, those are some of the prouder uh, immigrations from Europe. You know, you, you got your, uh, your Polish, you got your, your Irish um, who and and your Italians who are all very Catholic and have noticeable 
populations here in the country. So the Catholic tradition has also been very strong. And then also the third big one is this evangelical Christian sect, which is often with aligned with uh, Southern Baptist. Um, and this is also the type of Christianity that is more, uh, you know, people will talk about the mega churches. A lot of them are these evangelical uh, Christianities. And what, what was interesting for a long time, mainline Protestants were the, the high, you know, the big category, they were the dominant. And what happened was from the, uh, like the late seventies to the early nineties, the evangelical Christian sect had a noticeable rise in popularity where they went from being, you know, kind of a third or second or third, they ended up becoming the most dominant, uh, 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 tradition in the United States where almost a, like, like 29% of the country was under that tradition, which is almost a third of the country, which is about as big as any of the, I think it's like the big five or six religious traditions have ever obtained and the evangelical you know christians at that time had very concretely aligned themselves as the religious right and there is some questions of whether the rise of the evangelical tradition during the you know during the time period that it had and its concrete attachment to a certain style of politics ended up putting off some people in the way that, you know, we talked about kind of the secularization of Europe, where it, it could have been that this tradition rise so fast and seemed to be so much of the, you know, the powerful people in society and, and you know, have a, a very firm hold on, you know, different parts of society that people wanted to turn away because they didn't like what they were doing. Um, so that's, that's just one part, you know, it's another possible explanation of why things have been on the decline. It doesn't necessarily explain exactly what has been happening, like in the last decade, but it at least describes a trend Mm. or something that could be a jumping off point for things changing. So one thing that has been happening in the United States is that we have been becoming a more diverse nation. Um, you know, there there has been the kind of, you know, much lauded, you know, uh, the idea that, oh, the whole country was going to become demographic because all, you know, the the uh, uh, the country was going to be majority minority or whatever. Um, but, you know, those trends have been happening and the uh, different sects of people or sectors of people um, coming into this country and where we're going often lead to uh, differences from religion. So mainline Protestantism has seen a huge decline, mostly because for whatever reason, it has not really attracted a whole lot of young people. Um, the, the age of a mainline Protestant is quite up there compared to other religions because it's mostly been 
the older folk going it. And then, you know, like said, a lot of people haven't been uh, coming back in to fill in for uh, the people who die or, you know, just leave the religion. So, um, but, you know, there's been a big rise in other religions where, you know, the kind of super small ones like uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, all that kind of stuff. They've seen a huge surge as we get more people into our country. Dudeism. Um, yeah. Yeah. Dudeism. The Big <laughs> the Lebowski dude, derivative religion. Yeah. Um, and, but then also it's been interesting that it's seemingly every generation that has come along has been less religious than their the preceding uh, generation. So, you know, the, the boomers were less religious than the silent generation. The Gen Xers were less religious than the the boomers. The, the millennials have been less religious than the Gen Xers. And the Zoomers have been less religious than the millennials. Um, but then it's also... Uh, been an interesting thing. So one trend that often happens in religiousness is that people will grow up in a religion because their parents follow it. And then oftentimes um, when someone leaves high school, leaves the house, they become a religious for a period of time in their life because, you know, they're off in the world. They, you know, kind of escape the old traditions and this and blah, blah, blah. You know, this is a story that you hear a time of time, you know, it's Rumspringer from the Amish, you know, it, it's essentially that, <laughs> but, but, um, what has been happening over the last, however, you know, last two decades or so, or three at this point, um, is that, um, these people haven't been coming back. Um, they've been leaving and haven't been coming back. And, you know, it's, it's been shown that people who kind of have, these uh hallmarkers of what a uh you know what we see as a settled life um you know kind of buying a house having you know getting married having kids those are all things that correlate with higher religious participation and it just you know you, you know we've talked until we've been blue in our faces about how society has made those a lot harder to obtain as millennials and younger mm-hmm. and so part of it can be that just as part of a whole host of other things since we have not uh younger people have not been able to settle to the same degree that they um otherwise would have liked that they have also turned away from religion yeah, um, um, or haven't come back. I think that there's an interesting thread that also comes from an Ezra episode. I don't know if you've caught up to it or not, but the the guests were exploring how the concept of marriage and having a family has shifted within our society from being a cornerstone event to a capstone event. So essentially, the old model was that you would get married and start a family very soon after reaching adult maturity and then kind of build a career and a life on that cornerstone. Whereas now the idea is after you do high school, you go to school, maybe graduate school, you start your career, you become established. And then once you are financially and socially secured, then you get married and start a family if you desire. And that's the capstone instead of the cornerstone. And I think 
how that plays into this is that if marriage and family rearing is a cornerstone event, you really kind of start you've had less time from your religious upbringing to feel like you can have a life without it but if marriage is a capstone and you haven't been super religious in the interim you might be more willing to say why do i need it yeah i think that's that's a very interesting point because religion oftentimes you know it's not just the religious experience it's Absolutely. the community and support network that comes along with it. Absolutely. I mean that. I mean that's. I mean I. I. It's not strictly, but it. You know, it's kind of like the bowling alone kind of idea is. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. that it, it's a social structure that people need, and you know, if we don't have them, we kind of feel lost. So when if you get married and have kids young, you're oftentimes in a space where you're not quite ready to fully handle that on your own, even if you have family support and the likes. And, and but so you end up falling back on your religion because that helps provide a community and support in ways that you otherwise wouldn't have for things that you're not quite able to handle. So when it's the capstone, you you yeah, I mean you've had you've you been already able have to have those social structures. Well, what yeah, you you, you, you've it. yeah, you've lived your life. You've kind of figured things out. You've gone that long without religion, so you don't really need to fall back on it because you already chose to wait this long. You know, people who have the, I would like to think that people who have kids in their thirties are more deliberate about it and more. Um, yeah, not uh, a lot of unplanned pregnancies in the thirties. Yeah, yeah, they 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 got it what's going on. It happens. It can on. happen, but it can happen. But uh, they have a bit of firmer grasp of what's happening, um, a little bit more control of it. They've been around the block a few times, um, so it's uh, it's yeah. And you know, if I were to summarize the capstone versus the cornerstone, I mean, the cornerstone is the idea that you get married so you can do your life. And then the capstone is you do your life so you can get married, mm -hmm. um, which has been a change that has happened with a lot of people our age or a little bit older, you know, even. Um, so that's that's one possible reason for the atheism. But it's also so at one point we just uh, the book goes into the differences in the different versions of non-affiliation. So. Uh, the general social survey only um, gives you like five different options for your religious affiliation. And one is just none, um, which is often people uh, there, there's good reasons why there's a number of people probably out there who find that a little bit too harsh because there are a lot a good number of people who are vaguely religious, but or you know, they'll they say spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. Yeah. Um so there is another uh, uh, a poll or survey that gets done. I forgot the exact name of it, but it goes into a little bit. It gives three flavors of non-religious affiliation. It gives you atheist, agnostic, and then nothing in particular. And if you go along with that survey, what you find is that atheist and agnosticism um, have kind of stayed steady. Um, I mean, they've grown a little bit, but they aren't the outsized portion of it where um, in the general population, about five people, five percent of people are atheist, about six percent of people are agnostic. 
But then the real page turner is that about 20, oh, like 19 to 20% of people identify as nothing in particular. Mm. And it's interesting once you go into those two categories, what you kind of find. So in in the atheist and the agnostic tradition, if you were to say. Um, <laughs> um, Isn't lack of tradition the point? Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's kind of the is white a color, you know, kind of thing where in the abstract it isn't, but it's it's doing color things. So it is. What's the like, sound of one hand clapping? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if you go into those two traditions, you'll kind of find the kind of traditional view of who is non-religious um, they, they, uh, the demographics of who's atheist and agnostic trend, uh, towards male, educated, liberal men. <laughs> um, so if you were to think of it, it's kind of the, 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 uh, asshole atheist, you know, it is, <laughs> it is your, your Bill Mars. It is your, your Richard Dawkins. It's, you know, the, the, uh. You know, the stereotype of the college professor with the the pads on their elbows, you know, pro- trying to tell you that God truly is dead. You know, the character from God is not dead. Um, <laughs> uh, the professor character. I mean, that's that's basically who it is. That's the caricature. And of those two tracks, um, the the general look at who those are tracks closer to that image. Um, but but when you get into nothing in particular, it's. It's an interesting space because it, it encompasses a wide ranges. Like this is someone who would, you know, maybe describe themselves as spiritual and doesn't go to organized religion. This could be someone who um, uh, attends uh, services every week, but they go to a non-denominational service or, you know, they like switch around. Um and then also, you know, just a fair number of people who go to like Easter and Christmas services. Um, but but they're they're not affiliating with a specific church because maybe they just don't have strong enough opinions on it. Um, but they also don't want to like they still believe in God, but they don't necessarily ascribe to one you know, tradition or want to say outright that they don't believe in God. Um, and it's interesting because the, the, um, compared to, um, the baseline, you know, just the general populace and especially against the atheists and the agnostics, the nothing in particular skew female, um, of lower education and a little bit younger. Um, which is just interesting is it's not who mm-hmm. we would traditionally think of as, you know, the person who is non-religious. Um, so it, it's just, um, there, there's a wide array of people who are becoming non-religious, but the biggest drive in non-religious affiliation hasn't been necessarily from the educated it's it's been from the non-educated um masses and it's just a an interesting finding 
because, you know, we tend to think that, oh, you go to, you know, college and university, get an education, and then you no longer really have the same need to believe in God. But yeah, that's kind of the stereotype, right? Like, oh, I, I finally learned about science and then I didn't need to be a Christian. I mean, yeah, that's the Richard Dawkins version of, <laughs> you know, education it, where they see religion as nothing more but an explanation for why, I don't know, things fall or, you know, <laughs> stuff <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, there there is a growing um, non-religious identification among people who are less educated. And, um, you know, a, a fair number of these people ended up voting for Trump, but still voted overwhelmingly for Democrats. It's just... It's an interesting space. And, you know, one theory that I've had, I mean, this is something that is personal. So this is going from the book to the anecdote. But in the very end, uh, you know, there there was a kind of last chapter um, in which Ms., uh, Ryan Burge <laughs> very explicitly has one section. It was like, if you want church attendance to increase you need to stop demonizing democrats <laughs> um because so i'm someone who's i i'm a i'm a democrat i'm a liberal um you know whatever is is um within that space and i feel like it's hard for me to go back and participate in my religion because the i know I, the people who are there are often very, you know, they're good people. I like them, but they are very antagonistic towards how I d identify politically. Mm -hmm. And it's just hard to go and be part of that where knowing that if I were to express my political opinions, they would see me as a very bad person, which, you know, is maybe something that they also feel in the general society, which, you know, is, you know, to turn a head on its coin, you know, a coin on its head. But, um, you know, I remember that, like, you know, back in like the 2012 presidential cycle, one of the, the churches in town, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm non-practicing Catholic. So this is the Catholic churches. One of the churches, um, the, like a pamphlet was put out that, um, if you read through it, basically said you couldn't be a good Catholic and vote for Barack Obama. Um, you know, it wasn't explicitly put like that, but the way it framed all the information. But you could tell. That was the out. Yeah, that was the basic gist of it. And, you know, they they apologized for putting that out and said that they shouldn't have and, you know, come back and say, you know, oh, th this, you know, we you can still be a you know, good Catholic, you know, we can't tell you how to vote and, you know, be in the faith, but even just the fact that something like that happened and, and it didn't help that later on in the, the Obama presidency that Bishop Janke of the diocese of Peoria, where I came from made national headlines because he very directly compared Obama to Hitler over abortion, mm -hmm. which to me is just completely nonsense. Um, and you know, and just the, the church's insistence or, you know, and it's not even just like the church in general, because I know there are plenty of Catholics out there and, you know, church officials who 
are, you know, a little bit more liberal or, you know, more open to those type of things. Like I follow a, a Jesuit on uh, Twitter who has some, you know, pretty cool takes and I like him and I can, you know, I can vibe with what he says. Um, but, but just, you know, it's not even so much the clergy, you know, it's, it's the congregation as well. Um, that, that gets me, um, you know, we'll see people say, oh, you can't be a real Catholic if X and uh, and I'm X and I'm like, oh, fuck, you know, like, (laughs) I don't know if that's necessarily my understanding of the teachings, but but, uh, you know, if you feel that way, I, I don't know if I necessarily want to be around. So but then but then it's also like, well, but if I, maybe I want to need to go be the change I want to see in the whatever. But, you know, but yeah, but all this dilemma, is do I stay and attempt to change from within or do I just leave? and yeah. do something better. <laughs> yeah. So so my anecdata is somewhat supported by the data. Um, uh, and you know, it, it is seemingly that there are some portion of people who turn away because of politics. Um, but, but that is not like the main thrust of the book it, and just more something at the end. Um, and then another su- there were two suggestions at the end for, uh, people and pastors and all that stuff. And the other one was to like, Hey, try not Maybe, maybe try to do some good in the world and like don't um, be very explicitly just trying to, you know, drive up church attendance or membership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, the, the interesting thing about Ryan Burge is that he's also a pastor. So he's an academic and then is also a pastor at a Southern Baptist church in Illinois. You know, and, all the time that we've talked about this, I don't think I ever knew that. Yeah, I didn't say it. So um, <laughs> it also kind of colors all this stuff. And, you know, he he could not be a more perfect person to straddle these two worlds. Um, and, and he's just a great guy in general. Favorite professor in college. Um, and... Um, so he was like, yeah, you know, at our church, you know, we saw dwindling membership. And, you know, when he got there, there were, you know, 50, uh, uh, you know, members of the congregation. And now there's like 20. And, you know, he's just like pulling his hair out, trying to figure out how to get more people. And there's just kind of the realization that, hey, maybe, you know, what we would have done before is a big thing. So what they started doing was. You know, they started doing this uh, program where they would provide lunches to uh, needy kids in the in the county or whatever. And, you know, they started off doing like 30 and then all of a sudden, you know, it got up to like they were doing hundreds every weekend. And, you know, there was big debate about whether, you know, they put he called it a tract, which I guess would be like a religious pamphlet, you know, you know, propaganda in other languages. Uh, in other terms of saying it, um, which I don't think is true, but it, you know, it, it better explains what it is um, in, in well, shorthand. There's, there's the textual definition of propaganda, and then there's the connotative definition of propaganda, and they're very different. Yeah, yeah. So this was more of a textual. Like um, it is, it was literature designed to express a certain viewpoint, not necessarily yes. that. Yeah, okay. Whereas, but, but the thing is, is that some people will see it 
as that connotated idea of it. Like, oh, they're giving out these lunches, but they're only doing it to try and get people to their church. So they made a very real decision of not to do that. They just put a little, you know, thing in there that said, hey, you know, this was provided by this church. If you ever need anything, give us a call. And, you know, there was a, you know, uh, at some point, some family made a call because, you know, a little kid of theirs didn't have a, a coat for the winter. And, you know, oh, they were just getting ready for a big old rummage sale at the church. So they... You know, were able to get that kid a winter coat and whatever else they needed. And, you know, who knows if those people became more religious because of it. But, you know, they they hopefully had a positive impact of what they were about and were able to actually help people. So, you know, it's it's a complicated thing. Who knows? Maybe these people are never coming back. Um, But, you know, for so long, so many churches in this country had you know, they, they had saw increasing returns that they thought were never going to happen. And then they stopped happening, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, religious non-affiliation in the United States, it's been increasing. It's not necessary. It's maybe not necessarily in the ways that you thought, but then it may also be in the ways that you thought. Well, it depends on how you thought, how you thought, <laughs> who to thunk. Not me. Yeah. But I, I, I thought it was a very good book. Um, I mostly summarized everything. And if, I mean, I recommend you buy the book, but then also um, Ryan Burge and Perry Bacon Jr. did a collaborative project on 538.com, which is basically a shorthand version of the book, but in article form. Um, so if you want to read that, go and check that out. Um, yeah, I, you, you've been pitching me Ryan Burge for a long time because like you said, he was your favorite professor in college. So you've, you've been yeah. on with him for a while, but, uh, I gotta say, I listening to this, I'm very interested to read this book. I think if I can find it next time that I'm doing, uh, uh, book replenishment, uh, it would yeah. be strongly considered. And um, if you if you very interested, he's he's very active on Twitter. He's always putting out little graphs and little takes of things that he's found in the intersection of uh, politics and religion and affiliation and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, he he's like it's funny because when I first was uh, had him as a professor, he was like first getting into stats programs and all that kind of stuff. And now he's like the the religion and statistics guy <laughs> like the religion and statistics guy like he he's getting uh you know he gets uh mentioned in a lot of different articles and stuff over you know out there and it's every time i see it i'm like oh that's cool <laughs> so so where yeah. but but is he the guy who was an eastern professor who taught yeah. a yeah. class yeah he did he did one class at U of I and I was in it. So I got very, very, uh, you know, universal universe lucky, you know, mm -hmm. like, oh, man, just this weird. Well, and it was also had to do with like at the time there was a very specific thing going on where Eastern Illinois what didn't have the adequate funding but then, you know, basically after that semester, they ended up having enough funding. So he was able to get his, you know, regular get, get back. 
So it's just interesting. Um, very specific moment that led to him and I crossing paths. Is he still at Eastern? Is that his primary I believe place? so, yes. Okay, cool. If he does still cheat, I think. But I don't I don't know if all the other stuff has made up enough for <laughs> But the dude's active. Dude's got a lot going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's really chill. And I recommend his book. Go buy it. <laughs> um so anyway, do you have anything else you want to say, Evan, on the no, subject or no, anything I, else? I think kind of generally, yeah. It's as people like Joe and I are who are in the uncomfortable cross section of Christian slash Catholic. I don't want to offend. Um, no, no. In in this context, Christian is fine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> slash also progressive people. I think that this is absolutely riveting to explore. I think the Burge comes to some interesting findings and... We'll see where it goes from here. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, Evan, you and I, we could not be more at the cross sections of all of this. Yeah. (laughs) Like seemingly. It it just seems like everything, We it's just all at odds and kind of tangled up together Mm -hmm. um, with the different parts of our identity, you know? And, you know, I guess I'm not even practicing, but, you know, it's like if I were on the survey, I would probably put like that I'm Catholic, but not super serious about it. And, you know, like that, <laughs> I would, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't identify as non-religious though. Mm-hmm. Catholic, but not so in your face about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Catholic, but not what you're thinking of. Catholic, you may not know I am, but then at one point you say something and I go, way, oh, way, hey, oh, hey, hey. <laughs> whoa, I'm Catholic. How dare so. you? I am Catholic, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you see? <laughs> Can't you see this thing that I have deliberately made not seeable? <laughs> But then I like to think that in uh, in this world, you just like all of a sudden are wearing a Pope hat like you yeah. weren't when the conversation started. But then once you get upset, like it appears on you, it, it, it would be like a joke if like, I don't know, it's just like a, a TV show. And, and exactly. Like, and you cut back to it. Yeah. Or yeah. Or like, you know, if they were like. I'm Jewish, can't you see? And it like turns back to them and they're like wearing stereotypical Hasidic, you know, like like clothing just out of nowhere. Exactly. You're you have become the Pope, is what is happening. Yeah. Yeah. So um can't you see? (laughs) Oh, I was blind and now I know. (laughs) Um so anyway, um Next week on Joe and Evan Tackle Religion, it's dicey. (laughs) Yeah, we start critiquing other religions, and it's not sensitive at all. No, it is not in good faith. (laughs) So, anyway, I think that's a good point to uh, do it. We hope that you've you've enjoyed this episode. Um, Maybe learn some. We've got some movies. We've got some religious affiliation. You know, pretty pretty on topic pretty on brand for us 
um, and we hope that you liked it too. Um, so thank you for listening. If you ever want to say anything to us, uh, email us at podcast at adequately And, um, and thank you, Anthony Hitch for the music. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. Mine as always is Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been as always adequately informed as always, as sometimes as always, as always.